This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the This Week in Rays Baseball Podcast. Here's your host, Neil Solons. All right, thanks for joining us for our latest podcast and Thanksgiving around the corner. So I hope uh, everyone listening has a very happy Thanksgiving. The Rays had a very busy week before Thanksgiving, and that's because of the deadline to set the roster for Rule 5. So joining us now is Senior Vice President, Hyam Bloom. Hyam, we haven't talked to since the promotion, so first, congratulations there. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Let's start with all the changes that were made. Eight men added to the 40-man roster, probably higher than most people thought. What was the thought process in that? It was a... a larger number of guys than we usually add. And I think for us, that just means that we had uh, a lot of players in our system uh, that we thought were going to be very valuable to us in the future and that we didn't want to risk losing in the Rule 5. There have been a lot of reports nationally. I think Susan Slusser, the San Francisco Chronicle, hit on it. Uh, and there's been some other national reporters who've touched that, look, with the collective bargaining agreement out there, we may see rosters expand from 25 to 26, which would make it easier to hide a Rule 5 selection for the entire year. Is that something you guys at least had to consider in adding eight players? Well, you do have to consider anything that might happen. But I think even under the current rules, we've seen teams be very aggressive taking players in the Rule 5. And obviously, there's some cost to protecting those players. It does uh, take up a spot on your 40-man. So I think for us, it's really a question of weighing the risk that you might lose this player and lose him for good uh, you know, versus the reward of what he might be able to be for you in the future. The outside pundits, uh, I think— probably correctly predicted that guys like Willie Adamas, Daniel Robertson, and then pitchers Chiwei Hu, Ryan Stanek, Jamie Schultz were probably the automatics. But let's just touch on them and how many of those guys can maybe help the Rays at some point in 2017. Well, you're right that those guys uh, were uh, widely suspected to be added to our 40-man, and uh, certainly we internally felt the same way. Uh, and I think really for uh, for just about all of them, there's a chance that they could contribute at some point this year. Uh, you mentioned two infielders in, in Robertson and Adamas, who we both uh, think very highly of, uh, guys that we got as major pieces of trades, uh, and they're both coming along really well and uh, look forward to them contributing. And then uh, those arms, all three of them, uh, bring uh, big league stuff, and they bring power to a, to, to a pitching staff, and uh, they've all got the chance to contribute this year. I don't think anyone was surprised that either Austin Pruitt or Hunter Wood or Jose Alvarado were added to the 40-man. What did each bring, and give us an idea as to why all three were brought on board? Well, just going uh, one by one, Pruitt is a really interesting guy. He was a ninth-round pick, a uh, senior sign in the draft a few years ago, and one of those guys who just methodically worked his way through our system and kept getting outs. And uh, he added a cutter recently and really became one of the better pitchers in AAA. And a guy who is not going to overpower you, um, but with the assortment of stuff that he has, just really knows how to pitch. And he's a guy who became uh, one of the most reliable options on that Durham staff and someone who we think uh, is going to be able to pitch in the big leagues. Uh, talking about Wood, Wood is a little behind uh, Pruitt in our system. He's uh, you know finished the year in Double A, uh, 
Um, and another guy who, you know, the physicality isn't going to wow you. He's a little bit on the smaller side, but uh, the stuff is big league. I mean, he's got a good fastball. And at the pa- in the past, when he was in the bullpen uh, in low A, we've seen him up to 97, 98. Uh, and a very good breaking ball, too, that we think is going to play at this level. Uh, and finally, Alvarado, who uh, is sort of a wild card. Uh, he was uh, kind of a late bloomer. And uh, this is a guy who's, uh, you know, left-handed pitcher who uh, will absolutely wow you with his stuff. He's been up to 100 uh, with the fastball. He's got a nasty breaking ball. And for him, uh, we've seen his ability to pitch and his command start to improve really late in the season and then now pitching this winter in the Venezuelan Winter League. In a day and age where we see so much physicality out of major league bullpens, you added Stanek, Schultz, and Alvarado. Alvarado's the only one who, uh, and Stanek have both hit 100. How important is that? for this organization to have? I mean, look, you want to have swing and miss first, but to have that power certainly helps. Well, we like outs no matter how we get them, uh, but it is true that uh, when you look at uh, what plays in the big leagues, certainly the bigger your stuff is, the harder you throw. Uh, into, you know, All else being equal, you've got a better chance of having success there. And there's also an intimidation factor uh, that certainly we've gotten to see in our division, uh, both guys that we've had and guys that we've had to hit against, uh, that especially late in the game, having uh, that high-octane stuff uh, really does play a role and I think can get in the head of the opposition. That said, um, you know, you mentioned Pruitt and having maybe not the stuff of the others, but we also saw, and look, I don't want to compare him to Kyle Hendricks, but we saw in the World Series that there is something to be said for guys who know how to pitch. Uh, how important does that come into play? Because you start to see teams become copycats, and if you expose them, maybe some lesser team says, hey, we'll try him as a, as a starter or a long man to see if he can survive up here. Yeah, that was exactly part of our thought process, is that you've seen a guy like that be that successful at AAA and really show an ability to use uh, a number of different pitches and get guys out. And as we've, as we've seen and we saw in the World Series, I mean, you can get outs at the major league level against very good hitters without lighting up the radar gun if you really know how to pitch and you're really able to execute. With eight additions meant some subtractions. Now, your roster was only a 36 at the time. Uh, you released John Lamb, you DFA'd John, uh, John, uh, Steve Geltz, and then you made the trade involving Richie Schaefer and Taylor Motter. Let's address the first two, the two pitchers, um, and then we'll touch on the position player in the trade. Yeah, Lamb obviously had not been in the organization a very long time. Um, and uh, in trying to make all this work with the number of guys we felt we needed to add, uh, you know, he was someone we chose to clear a spot with. Uh, we're hopeful that we're going to be able to find a way to keep him in the organization somehow. But obviously, for the time being, uh, we had to let him go. Uh, Geltz, you know, similar. We do have uh, a decent amount of depth now, especially with adding all of these arms uh, and had to make some difficult choices. Uh, Steve obviously had a portion of his time here where he was a real integral part of our bullpen. Uh, 2016 didn't go the way that he wanted it to go. Uh, and that made it, you know, in our minds, the right call to remove him. And let's address the trade of both Taylor Motter and Richie Schaefer. Why were they guys the best to move? And then let's uh, give us a thumbnail sketch of the three players you got in return. Well, for those guys, we didn't look at it so much as removing them uh, because it was a trade, and obviously we were able to get some players back. Uh, And these are both players that, as you know, we've liked in the past and still believe they have ability. I think some of what made it easier to move them was the depth that we have, uh, certainly ahead of them with some of the regular players on our major league roster at the positions that they play, and also behind them with guys like Robertson and Adamas coming on the roster, with guys like Casey Gillespie and Jake Bowers ready to move up to AAA. Uh, it's, it was an area of uh, some thickness and depth for us and made it easier to move those guys. And we, we were able to get uh, three players in return that we think are interesting. 
Give us why you or why do you feel each of those three players are interesting? Well, starting with uh, we'll start with uh, Kittridge, who's played at the at the highest level of the three of them. Um, you know, interesting bullpen guy who we saw fastball in the mid '90s with a good breaking ball. Um, you know, a guy who had pretty good success uh, in AAA for Seattle and uh, adds some depth to our group. Uh, and then the, the other two guys are down lower, a little further away. Dalton Kelly, who's a left-handed hitting first baseman, a guy who uh, is a really good hitter. Uh, just, just, just a guy who you can trust to handle the bat. Uh, had a very successful season. Uh, was uh, one of the best situational hitters in the Mariners organization, which is something that's very exciting to us. And then uh, Dylan Thompson, who we liked very much in the draft a couple years ago, and he hasn't gotten to pitch much as a professional for a variety of reasons. But uh, this is a guy in the draft we saw as some, as a projectable kid who might really benefit from our pitching program, and we still feel that way acquiring him now. Well, you now have a full 40-man roster, but I'm guessing coming back recently from the GM meetings, you still got a lot you feel you need to do as an organization going forward. For sure. Uh, Friday's moves are really uh, just kind of a, a dividing line in the offseason where we, we do need to set that roster, but we still have tons of work uh, ahead of us. And we laid hopefully a lot of good groundwork and a lot of conversations. The GM meetings, it was a very busy week, uh, just to get a better idea of what uh, the market looks like, both the free agent market and the trade market, and then things that we might be able to do to shore up our roster. Good luck in that end, and uh, have a great Thanksgiving with you and your family. Thanks, Neil. You too. That is Hyam Bloom, and we certainly appreciate him joining us on our podcast. And our next guest just uh, was nominated for a big award, so we're happy to have on a nominee and finalist for the Florida Sportscaster of the Year. No surprise there. Dave Wills. Dave, uh, happy early Thanksgiving, and congrats. Neil, thank you, and thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I know Andy was the uh, Florida Sportscaster of the Year in uh, 2015. So, uh, you know, it was a tremendous honor for him, and deservedly so. And I, I think, you know, Andy was eloquent. I mean, it was an Andy Freed Award, but, uh, you know, he, he made note many, many times it was more of a we award. And, and, and like I've said many, many times to whoever will listen to me, uh, I think we do as great, good a job as anybody in Major League Baseball from the time we go on the air with your pregame show. Uh, get through that and then do the game and then get to the post-game show and get through it of any team in Major League Baseball. So uh, while it, my name is uh, on the finalist list, although I think I heard, uh, what, Mick Huber uh, call a 98-yard touchdown this weekend <laughs> that was absolutely spectacular. And uh, who knows, he might uh, be able to ride that to the championship. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it is a, a humbling and uh, I am honored that uh, uh, my work was, and our work, as I said, was recognized uh, this past season. Well, it should be, and and I appreciate the kind words as well. You know, this was a busy week um, from a race perspective. We just heard from High and Bloom. You know, let's take a look first at the trade. I don't think anybody was, any of us were that surprised if someone would have said at the end of the year that either Taylor Motter and or Richie Schaefer would have been moved based on what was ahead of them and what was behind them, and also they had a, a tough 2016. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm going to start with Taylor Motter first. Uh, it was it, it was a very very disappointing situation for him. Uh, I'm sure he would have liked to have done better on the field. I expected more from him uh, on the field and even off the field. I had heard that he was kind of a high energy guy and uh, uh, heard some real good things about him from what I saw a couple of times in spring training and then what he did uh, while he was with our Double A team in Montgomery and then obviously uh, Player of the Year a couple of years ago with the Durham Bulls. And uh, he really just did not uh, do what I kind of expected him to be able to do. And looking at his actual game, there were a lot of shortcomings that I really didn't expect to see. I thought I'd see a guy that uh, would probably be able to create a little more havoc on the bases, and he was not a very good base runner. And uh, 
did not to have uh, the kind of speed and quickness that I think I had hoped to see out of a, a guy that's supposed to be a middle infielder and not all that big. So, uh, you know, I wish him the best of luck with the Seattle Mariners organization. Uh, you know, obviously there were a few other things that uh, popped up through the season that uh, people have alluded to that uh, probably led to him not coming back uh, as he did in September. But uh, wish him the best. It's a new chapter for him, and hopefully he can turn the page. And as far as, you know, Richie Schaefer is concerned, I've heard from a number of people around the area about uh, giving up on a number one draft pick. But, you know, Richie, first of all, what a class individual and what a nice mm-hmm. guy. I mean, uh, if, if, if he played as good as he as a nice guy as he is, uh, he'd be on his way to an all-star career. Uh, you know, a guy that would always take time to talk to you, they'd say hi to you, to spend some time if he's in the dugout and uh, find out what's going on. And, you know, not a lot of guys are like that. But, uh, you know, if you think back to Richie's career, and I know you've uh, followed it just as uh, closely, if not closer than I have, I mean, he really only had one really decent year in the minor leagues, and that was 2015. And, uh, you know, this was a guy that I think we had some high expectations for, a guy that we had hoped that would develop into a power-hitting corner infielder or DH. And uh, it, it just didn't work out consistently enough for him. And I, I'm with Andy. I know Andy made mention of it many, many times during games, and we talked about it privately, too. I just don't know how that swing, as it is right now, is going to play on a consistent basis in the big leagues. I really don't. I mean, that swing is as long as it gets. And, yes, when he makes contact, it's going to go a long, long way. But the, uh, the contact, unfortunately for him and for us last year, was few and far between. I would agree on all ends. Uh, completely classy kid. Um, swing, yes, long. And, look, two-thirds of Major League Baseball players end up, if they figure it out, they figure it out with their second team or their third team, as, as we've learned over the years. So I wish him well. Um, and from a race perspective, you know, they had to open up spots for guys that they felt are going to help them in the short and the long term. Um, you know, Willie Adamas, Daniel Robertson are guys who they feel are going to be better than a Taylor Motter. Um, and Brad Miller is, is your first baseman now. So it made sense with guys ahead and behind what the race did there, too. It did. I mean, you know, we, we've always got a vet. It's a fine balancing act. And uh, now, with you know, again, Matt kind of uh, being pushed a little further upstairs and Eric Neander running uh, the day-to-day operations with High Bloom. Not only do they have to worry about what's happening in late November of 2016, but they've got to start sitting there going, all right, well, what's going to happen in 2017? How will this affect 2018? So it's a balancing act for our baseball operations department. And, uh, you know, time just seemed to run out on both Richie Schaefer and, and, and Taylor Motter. And, you know, at the end of the day, too, I mean, we finished uh, with almost 100 losses with them. How much worse are you know are you going to be if you don't have them? So it's time to turn the page on a couple of fronts, and and I, I think I'm really really excited. I mean, I would have liked to have seen a Daniel Robertson toward the end of last year, get a little taste of what he could possibly do at the big league level. I'm excited to see Willie Adamas a year older and hopefully a year better because if that's the case, uh, and just watching this past World Series, uh, I think a lot of fans got an idea of what a young middle infield type uh, can do to turn around the fortunes of a franchise. I mean, you know, Javi Baez is one thing. I mean, he's surrounded by stars on that Chicago Cubs team. But Francisco Lindor was as big a piece of the puzzle as that the Cleveland Indians team had. And while they're battling the Cubs to a seventh game into extra innings without their best player and two of their three top starters, Francisco Lindor was a big, big part of it. Now, I'm not saying Willie Adamas can be Francisco Lindor, but uh, what I saw in bits and pieces last year during the spring I was very, very impressed, and what we're hearing from some of the people down in the minor leagues, they're very impressed with Willie Adamas as well. No doubt, and Addison Russell isn't too shabby either, so if, he's, no. if, he, if he ends up like that, that'd be okay too. 
Um, you know, the other thing that I think was important, you talk about it so much on the broadcast, Dave, is physical bullpens. And among the eight guys that the race protected were Ryan Stanek, who hits 100, Jamie Schultz, who throws upper 90s, and a guy who maybe was a surprise, but look, he's left-handed and he's hit 100 and is pitching well in winter ball, is Jose Alvarado. And having guys who are physical relievers, potential relievers, is very, very important, especially in light of the fact that, you know, you and I have seen the reports they are talking about a 26-man roster. Um, so if you lose a guy to Rule 5, other teams can more easily protect him over the course of a year. Well, you know, again, like I said, we, we had some guys that went out there and gave it their all, and uh, they're coming in throwing 89, 90, 91, 92. And, uh, you know, 20, 25 years ago, having a guy coming out of the pen throwing 92, that might have been enough. But uh, nowadays, and... Again, I mean, you know, the people look at what happens in the postseason and they try to emulate what happened there. And people are making a big deal about this whole bullpen uh, redo where uh, you bring in your, your number one bullpen guy in the fifth or sixth inning to win ball games or try to save ball games there as opposed to holding on to them until uh, the ninth inning. Well, I think we also found out that while that was going on, did anybody check to see where Aroldis Chapman's velocity was going the last mm-hmm. couple of times he was taking them out? Did anybody see how Andrew Miller became very hittable uh, the last couple of times that uh, he took the mound against the Chicago Cubs? Now, uh, given the fact that, yes, uh, they saw the same stuff for six or seven games, that helps the hitter in a little bit, but the velocity started going down. So before we uh, start to think that this is the way you're going to be able to play on a daily basis during a 162-game schedule, uh, I think the sabermetricians and some of the people who became enamored with that need to pump the brakes a little bit and relax because – you're going to just wear people out, and they're never going to make their way to September, much less October. So uh, you need some, some, some quantity down there. You need some quality, too, no doubt about it. And I, I'm excited about some of the power arms that we're hearing about at the, uh, at the minor league level. I know I read some of the comments from Mark Topkin in this past weekend's uh, Tampa Bay Times about the kids that can hit close to 100 miles an hour. Now, we've got a kid already there that can hit almost 100 miles an hour in any Romero, and uh, unfortunately it hasn't clicked for him all the way, but when you do get a guy that can throw some strikes and does have some velocity and does have some swing and miss, I think that's a big key uh, with anything else because uh, we saw that a couple of times in the postseason too where uh, a couple of guys would get on with nobody out. And if you've got a 91-92 guy who depends on contact to get guys out, there's a pretty good chance one, if not both, of those guys are going to score before three outs are recorded. So it's good to have some swing and miss, and hopefully uh, the Rays have some of that. And I think that's really the best way that the Rays are going to be able to build up their bullpen again uh, is either going to be coming up through the minor leagues or through a couple of big trades, which may or may not happen because uh, I know we're going to talk about it maybe a little bit here in just a couple of moments, but watching Brett Cecil get four years, $30 million plus, Neil, I mean, it blew my mind. I mean, Brett Cecil was a guy that, first of all, when we would go to Toronto, the Toronto people were talking about how he wasn't having that great of a year, and there was some talk about, if you were to have a bad outing or two, might even be let go. And then, B, I really was kind of happy when he'd come into a game. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't bother me last year when Brett Cecil would come into a game. And now this offseason, he gets a four-year deal for a guy who's already probably overextended his shelf life. And $30.5 million or something like that, that's crazy. Now, the only thing that Brett might have going for him is the fact that he's going over to a new league. I think we both know that the National League might be a little more uh, – uh, have to be able to maneuver through a lineup as a left-handed pitcher in the National League than it would be in the American League, especially the American League East that had some of the big boppers uh, that we've had here over the last few years. But uh, that's just mind-boggling, and I really yeah. think it's going to tilt the market toward the big 
big spenders again, and it's going to leave uh, guys like us uh, kind of waiting to see what's left over on the shelves when uh, the big boys are done picking them. I, I totally agree. I was, and the thing I'm hearing is there's no trade involved, too. And yep. I mean, why would you, why'd you, why would you acquire an asset for four years, a reliever no less, and pay him that much and not have the ability to move him? Um, and then beyond that, you know, in the day and age, like we're hearing, you know, Greg Holland and how many big teams are on him, a guy like that might have been like a Fernando Rodney several years ago or a Joaquin Benoit where, you know, the big teams would say, eh, you know, now they're valuing the bullpen more and they're going out and saying, okay, well, you know, we can pay him. And if he doesn't pan out the first year, he'll pan out the second. Uh, it, it definitely leads to either A, you have to get your bullpen arms through development uh, if you're the Rays, through trade, or be fortunate and have a guy faulty at the end. Yeah, and, and just, you know, again, maybe find one of those Grant Belfort-like uh, or J.P. Howell kind of uh, relievers that just develop out of nowhere. I mean, that, that does happen. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you're looking for diamonds in the rough, uh, you, you usually have to uh, kick out a couple of pieces of coal before you actually find that diamond. So uh, it, that's not the, the, the most ideal way to probably try and fill out your bullpen. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see how this does play out. Uh, there's no doubt that I still think that that's our number one uh, uh, spot that needs to be addressed yep. if we want to get better in the American League East. I know that uh, you know I, I kind of harped on the catching position for a long time during the middle part of the regular season, but then over the final couple of months, uh, I shifted the bullpen. Uh, the importance of the bullpen, and, and this, again, it cracks me up that everybody's focusing on the 2016 postseason as being how bullpens came to life. All i got to do is I go back to 2002, when the uh, Angels beat the San Francisco Giants. Think about the Angels and the guys that they were bringing out of the bullpen in 2002. Brendan Donnelly and, uh, you know, Steve, uh, Steve uh, um, I'm blanking on his name now, but, you know, there was another right-handed uh, reliever that they would bring out that was a really, really good uh, setup, uh, setup guy. And then they would bring in, you know, as you said, K-Rod and then uh, obviously Troy Percival. They, had four, they were four and five deep back in 2002. So this is, uh, this is nothing, nothing new. Uh, that uh, just came up here during this past off season. Uh, it was a little more of a, you know, again, this guy had the sixth, this guy had the seventh, eighth, ninth. But uh, the, 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 if you think again that you're going to be able to uh, throw your number one reliever out there in the sixth and seventh innings and win more games than you lose, I think you're sadly mistaken. Because the only reason why it worked for the Indians and it worked for the Cubs at times was for the Indians, especially uh, Andrew Miller bought into it, and they still had pretty good guys, Cody Allen and Brian Shaw, closing games out behind them. Uh, it'd be a heck of a lot different if the Rays last year wanted to use Alex Colomay in the sixth or seventh inning and then had to defend on a few of the guys that they had in the bullpen toward the end of last year to try to get outs in the eighth and ninth. I don't think it would have worked out as well. No doubt. And those two teams had uh, terrific starting pitching in the regular season when healthy, so they ate a lot of innings, which meant that those guys were able to do what they did in October. Yeah. You know, And, and so that, that's, that's important, too, in, in the, the whole perspective on what was done in the postseason. Dave, what's up for you Thanksgiving? Uh, Chicago, Florida, what's, what's the plan? We are going to be in Florida for Thanksgiving. Uh, we've got uh, uh, just kind of a laid-back Thanksgiving here uh, on the actual holiday, and then um, we're going to head to, to, to uh, Disney for a couple of days the week after Thanksgiving, and then we're going to head to Chicago for a handful of days to go see the family for uh, kind of a combination thanks uh, uh gathering. We'll be able to see both sides of the family. Uh, over the five or six days, we're going to be in Chicago in early December, and then back here in uh, uh, Tampa, St. Pete for for the holidays. So it's in the New Year. So, yeah, you know, I, I miss seeing friends and family in Chicago, but when I started to see that white stuff flying around <laughs> to the north, 
up there in the Great Lakes over the weekend. I don't miss that at all. No doubt. Enjoy it. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, and we'll talk to you soon, my friend. Neil, thank you very much. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. That is Dave Wills. So he's going to be in Florida for Thanksgiving. I could tell you someone who won't be at home for Thanksgiving, and that's Kevin Padlow. He's one of the players for the Rays minor league system who's actually in Australia. They just started play this past weekend. He had his first home run in Australia. Before he left, I asked Kevin who came over in the Corey Dickerson trade when he was down here in Instructional League in September, uh, what it was like when he found out he was dealt. Oh, it was definitely uh, definitely different. I was shocked for a, like a week or so. Uh, I was I was up in the mountains actually with my family, so I didn't get, really get such good reception when I found out. And I was just shocked. I mean, it was crazy. And um, I mean, obviously the difference is coming over to Florida, different than uh, Arizona. But other than that, I mean, the guys have been great. The coaching staff, the staff, the players have all been fun, and I've really enjoyed it. Is there something, you know, sometimes when you come to a new place, you're trying to prove yourself. You're trying to show, okay, this is why they traded for me. Was it hard not to do that, or what helped you relax? Because you had a pretty good season. You were an all-star in the Midwest League. Yeah, I mean, definitely you have a little chip on your shoulder and want to show, like, you guys just traded for me. Like, let me show you what I can do. But... uh, I mean, I was kind of relaxed. The first month of the season, I feel like maybe I was trying to do a little too much. But other than that, I was pretty relaxed, got to know the guys pretty well, and my comfortability just got better. So, Tell me a little bit about you as a player. Obviously, we know you put up good numbers, but where do you think your strengths are and where do you want to improve the most uh, going into next year? Um, I'd say just be a little more consistent all-around game. I mean, uh, I mean, I have my ups and downs just like anybody, but I think the main thing for a baseball player is just to be consistent, and I really want to work on that, and just I think that will make me an all-around better baseball player. Is there a player that you model yourself after? You began as a high schooler as a shortstop, right? Now you're a third baseman. Yeah. I mean, growing up, I liked Alex Rodriguez as much as people don't like him now. I mean, I still kind of like him. He's done now, obviously, but... I always liked him. I was a big fan of his. I always loved. I would make sure I go to the Yankee or uh, Yankee Angel games to watch him play and everything. But yeah, and then Trout, obviously, just because of his work ethic and the way he plays and the way he hits and puts up numbers. And he was one of my idols at the later half of my childhood. And you grew up going to Angel games? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Angel games were my thing. I mean, my dad was a Dodgers fan, but me and my brother were both Angels fans, so we made him come to the Angel games with us. And Padres, I could never really get into either. So yeah, big Angels. But you also grew up playing basketball, too. Was that a tough choice for you? I mean, I was a good basketball player. I, I was really good, I, I think. I was all state, but I I just didn't see a future going into college. I mean, I've had a couple of small D2 offers to go play basketball, but I knew baseball was my, my, my sport, so stuck what, with that. What's your game like basketball-wise, um, and do you at least shoot around ever? Yeah. I can I can I can put some three balls in and I can I can bang around down low pretty good too. So I got a little all around game. Would you fit in with Golden State? What, what kind of what kind of offense you? Ah uh, no, I don't know if I could I could light it up like them, but I mean I I can show a thing or two. In terms of you know growing up in California, what inspired you to start playing baseball? Because you mentioned you were a multi sport guy. Mm-hmm. Um, just mostly my dad and the people I surrounded myself with in school and stuff. My dad obviously had a big influence that took me out on the field from day one, and I just fell in love with it. And then I started surrounding myself with more baseball players, and then I took off from there. Obviously, I would think one of the strengths in your game is the power. Yeah. How Where's that balance between learning you know, to put the ball in play when you need to but also know that you've you've got that as such a, a strong part of your game. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge, especially when you get up in the count or 
uh, you're like I said, way ahead in the count. You want to just muscle something out of there, swing as hard as you can. It's a challenge to stay focused on just taking your best swing and staying easy with it. And if you hit it good, it's going to go out either way. To not get over anxious and maybe roll over a ball on a 2-0 fastball or something like that. So it's definitely a challenge, but we're working on it. Is that the biggest thing you're trying to make the adjustment to? I'd say being consistent between those two things. I mean, yeah. That's Kevin Padlow. Again, he had a pretty good weekend, his first weekend in the Australian Baseball League, and we wish him well and all the other race prospects there too. Well, we wish you well this Thanksgiving holiday. We thank you for joining us, and uh, our next podcast after the holidays, we'll talk to you soon.